Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Manchester United back in sixth. Is this 2018? Well, we're on our way towards the Christmas period. We've faced two humiliating derby defeats. The gap in class to the title challenges is blatantly obvious. And the manager is under severe pressure with seemingly no way back. And he's been hung out to dry. There are similarities to three years ago when Jose Mourinho ploughed headfirst into the sack. Insufficient board backing, prolonged pain, embarrassing defeats to rivals. But... Things still aren't like that. They're not that bad. But this is painful, not just disheartening. Genuinely painful. United have 17 points from 11 league games and are therefore on track for our lowest points tally since 1990. This was a team tipped to be on the brink of challenging for the highest honours only four months ago and it's falling away faster than it was ever constructed. Welcome back to the Manchester United Weekly Podcast and to another episode which is unfortunately dedicated to dissecting the current mess at Old Trafford. We'll be talking about the defeat in the derby, of course, and everything else around. Jack, let's not get too worked up too quickly. So first of all, how are you? How was your week apart from the harrowing events of Saturday lunchtime? Yeah, it wasn't bad. It was my birthday last week. So I had a nice day. United weren't playing on that day, thankfully. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was it was all good. Thankfully, I didn't even manage to, to watch all of the game because I was on my way to a lovely round of golf. So that softened the blow a little bit. It does soften the blow, certainly. And happy birthday. Um, yeah, the game was, it, I was, I was saying before, it was the Liverpool game. There was a sense of kind of numbness around Old Trafford. And I think that numbness and shock was more kind of a lack of surprise and just gloom and glumness at Old Trafford instead against City. This kind of, just a general recognition that this was entirely predictable and we were just utterly, utterly dominated. As a as a wider point, we're into another international break. September, United have started the season well. We'd thrashed Leeds. We'd not been brilliant against Southampton and Wolves, but we were about to welcome into the team players like Varane and Ronaldo and Sancho was coming in, etc. Greenwood was playing very well uh, and United looked good. October, 
just a month later and things already looked bad and the talk of the sack was already there and now into November and um, since that October international break we've lost to Leicester we've narrowly beaten Atalanta uh, we've narrowly drawn to Atalanta we've been thrashed by Liverpool and City uh, and that's that's not it it's not been good uh, all over and it, you, you do get the sense now that <laughs> Ole was at the wheel of a train that was kind of slowly puffing its way up the hill with the occasional shot of steam into the air, which yanked us further forward. A, a shot of steam, like a, a great signing in the summer, Varane's unveiling, Ronaldo's debut double. But going back a couple of years as well, lots of, of those shots of steam, beating PSG, beating uh, the rivals many, many times. Uh, but now the the engine has kind of lost power and all the distance that was gradually, gradually eaten up over the last couple of years as we regained our way back to the top, we're, we're covering that ground again, but this time we're going backwards and at a much, much quicker pace. All the good work that was done is being unravelled so quickly. Yeah, it's I, it was quite incredible how how fast the, the downward spiral has, has come, really. I tweeted, I think, in the first half that it was honestly quite sad, I thought, watching the first half, especially of the City game, because it wasn't even there wasn't even anything really happening that, you know, was was gut wrenching like the Liverpool game where it was sort of mistakes and it was, you know, just sort of goal after goal. It, it honestly just made me sad because I thought back like what, six weeks ago after the Newcastle game when United had had a good start to the season. We were so optimistic. I remember saying on the podcast, this is the special time to be a Man United fan. And it was, and it, it really was. And that, you know, we're now at the start of November going into this international break and things have come crashing down in a quite spectacular way. And it honestly is, it's not as if we went into this season already apprehensive, you know, and I think when we've been in situations like this, whether that's under Solskjaer or Mourinho or Van Gaal, those really bad periods have come in seasons where I think we already expected United not to be doing great or at least not to be doing as well as we yeah. we hoped we might. And I think that's what make, what makes this this bad period particularly tough and particularly difficult to deal with as a fan is that we came into this season full of optimism. I don't think we, you know, not as if we were favourites for the league title, but after a good season last year, making still to this day, we'll you know, say that those signings that we made were great signings. And so then to, to to be on that high with those expectations and with that hope that I don't think we've felt in a long time to yeah. then feel it coming down now, is it just makes it all the harder to deal with. Yeah, because if we're honest, I think to s- summarise our view of the summer, it was that we hadn't done quite enough in the transfer window to go and win the league and that we had to sign a, a central midfielder to do that. But that we had made two brilliant signings in Jaden Sancho and Rafael Varane and we hadn't done quite enough but that should put us in a position to challenge for the title and I think our definition of success in the, in the way league, we summed it up was that we hadn't we hadn't done everything that we should have done but everything that we had done was very good yeah and our, our kind of uh, our marker of success was that United would still be in the league still be challenging for the title or at least up there just about in the race going into May and that quite obviously is not going to happen. So that mark of success to be missed by November, but realistically kind of by the middle of October when we lost to Leicester, it was already looking worrying. Um, yeah, is a, is a failure. Uh, it's, yeah, 
it, it was just a, a sad day rather than a day of anger, I think. Just the predictability of it all and the complete domination. If we if we talk specifically about the City game and just to get it out of the way, just how bad it was before we then talk about the big picture stuff again, uh, it was pretty humiliating. They basically just, they've just pinned us into this completely flat line and then just passed their way through us. 753 passes at Old Trafford more than any team has completed against United in the Premier League since Opta Records began. And it, it it wasn't as if it didn't feel like that. It absolutely felt like we were just being passed around for 90 minutes straight. We said in our episode after the Liverpool game that the, the second half of the Liverpool game was was humiliating in that they, they basically just sort of stopped trying and really just went into sort of protection mode, yeah. make sure no one gets injured, just sort of keep the ball, run out the clock. And it's happened. The same thing happened again against Man City to an even greater extent. And I think what made it even more embarrassing was that, yeah, it was the whole game, but they were also only 2 0 up. Yeah. You know, they were so confident and so comfortable in the game that even with only a two goal lead, it ended with them basically in the second half just sort of killing the game. And even then, we had no answer. Yeah. And there were people saying, oh, it was like a training session for City. And this is not true because any Premier League training session is twice, three times the intensity of that second half at, on, on Saturday. It was, it wasn't a training session. Yeah. It was simply a, it was a completely futile exercise. Like a game against their under 18s. That's more what it felt like. Yeah. Although at least the 18s would be up for it and trying to prove a point. We didn't try to prove a point. We didn't do anything. And yeah, it just, it, it felt like we'd gone out yeah. to not lose as heavily as we did against Liverpool. And what saddens me is, look, we came on after the Spurs game and the Atalanta game and Atalanta had been a bit of a, a, I think after Spurs, we all wanted to see, will this continue? Atalanta showed it, it wasn't. And what's, what's I think a real shame is the three at the back approach against Spurs was a great decision and, and worked completely. Against Atalanta, I understood it. Even against City, I understood it. But it was as if we'd kind of had this taste of, oh, this might work. And we just yeah. stuck with it, even if it wasn't necessary. And I fully, I completely understand going three at the back. I understand the formation. The problem was in when you, when you go in even a tiny bit deeper, uh, more detail than just the the blatant numbers uh, in a row of yeah. formation. Because I think we said in, in the end of the episode last time, three at the back could be good because you could have a spare defender who could track the many little runners that City have coming from midfield. But instead, the three three defenders just stayed there with no striker to mark. No one really tracked anyone. Occasionally, I think Maguire would get drawn out by, I can't remember who it was, maybe Bernardo Silva. But yeah, we had the extra man, but we just kind of left them there. So we had this back five, not marking anyone. And City just played in front of us and would eventually break it down. I think it was it was quite sobering in a way to, I think... It, just see how easy it was for Guardiola to nullify the strength of the three at the back that we had seen against Tottenham. Yeah. And that it kind of reinforced this notion in my head that when I thought about all of the good tactical performances, good tactical changes that have happened during Solskjaer's tenure, pretty much all of them have been a bit of a surprise. Mm. You know, there have been, especially in big games, he's made some really good changes and, you know, genuinely ended ended with us playing really, really well. I remember a couple of years ago, he went to a diamond for a few yeah, games. We played yeah. three at the back before in some of these big games. Split you know, there have been times he's, he's The double left back sometimes. Yeah, exactly. 
Exactly. There have been times where, you know, these good tactical changes really have come off, but pretty yeah. much all of them have been, a, have been a surprise. And, you know, with a game and 20 minutes of three at the back that we played combined against Spurs and Atalanta is all it really took in terms of information that the opposition would have for Guardiola to completely nullify it. And it was, it wasn't mm-hmm. even difficult. They, they pressed us so high up the pitch. The, 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 the good thing at Spurs was that the fullbacks could get very high up the pitch and then one of the centre backs would also step out. And what they did so well, City, was that they pressed the fullbacks really high, our fullbacks. So Wambasaka and Luke Shaw were ended up so, so deep. And so we literally had a flat back five. And then that yeah. meant that because there we didn't have any width in, mid, in midfield, you had Shaw and Wambasaka occupied by Je- Jesus and Foden on, on either side. And then Cancelo mm. and Walker basically had the freedom of the Old yeah. Trafford to do whatever they want because the midfielders didn't, couldn't go to the width because then there'd be a huge gaping hole in the middle. Ronaldo and Greenwood, A, it's not really their job to track back like that. And two, they didn't want to, in case we won the ball back, they wanted to be ready for a counter-attack. Shaw and yeah. Wambasaka couldn't push on to Cancelo and Walker because they were occupied by Foden and Jesus. So we ended up basically with the game happening... 20 yards further up the pitch and where our centre-backs were, but we couldn't figure out a way to actually make make, make the centre-backs useful and then enable the full-backs to be able to push on. It, it was it just struck me as, as easy, to be honest, for Man City, both well, the tactical changes and on the pitch. It was easy because you say they pressed us hard and they, well... well, well they, they, they pressed us high. They didn't really press us hard. You know, yeah, we've, well, statistically... We've, we've seen games where... Yeah, go on. Statistically, in the, the the way people measure kind of the how much you have to work to win the ball back is a, a stat called PPDA, which is passes per defensive action is what it stands for. Basically means how many times does the opposition pass the ball before you attempt to win it back. So the lower the number, the harder you're working. So United has traditionally been pretty high because we don't press very high. Cities and Liverpools are often very low, for example. Um, and cities was, it it was kind of in the bottom half of what they've had to do this season. It was just kind of routine for them. They didn't have to work very hard. They pretty much didn't have to work very much to nullify United completely and then just enjoy, as you say, the freedom of Old Trafford. And that's what's, they didn't even have, they played very well. They were very, very good. And they're obviously a brilliant team, but there's a difference between playing well and having to work really hard to play well. And they didn't have to do that. And, and yet in the first half, the average position of every United player was within our own half. And what was even more disappointing is if, so I looked at the the kind of average positions on the pitch uh, in the first half. And it's not as if we're in kind of a, a very set up defensive structure within our own half, because then that you'd think, okay, well, at least that gives us a platform from which to build. As you were saying, the fullbacks were kind of level with the centre-backs, pinned back in this back five. Ronaldo and Greenwood slightly further forward than the central midfielders and Bruno kind of tucked in as well. It wasn't it, it, it wasn't like we had this structure ready to go. It was just a complete flat line. You know those, um, those birds you draw, which is just kind of one wavy line when you're a kid <laughs> in, in Byro or something? That was the shape of United's team. And that's not a, not a formation I've ever heard of. It was just one kind of wavy flat line all within our own half, all within kind of 20, 30 metres of halfway line. Um, so yeah, utter domination by City. Uh, I'm not sure there's much more we need to say other than it was, yeah, completely tactically outclassed. Yeah. But also, it, I mean, it wasn't just tactically outclassed as well. We just, we weren't up for it at all. The belief no. wasn't there. 
at all. And that's not something you could often say for social side. Not since maybe we were battered 4-0 by Everton. Yeah, and I think, you know, watching it over here in the US, the commentators made the point that it's actually easier for United to play away than at home at the moment. And I think that's very much the case. Mm. And I don't think that's anything to do with the fans. I think the fans have, have generally stayed pretty on side at Old Trafford. It's just that the, there's so much pressure and expectation on this team at the moment and so much scrutiny that they've brought on themselves, to be clear. It's not anything, you know, that's unfair, unwarranted. Yeah. But I think it, it just makes them freeze, basically. And I think playing away from home is a bit of a blessing at the moment. I think the, what we were just t- discussing before we started, Harry, was was this really much better than the Liverpool game? And I, I guess it was in that I don't yeah. think there were quite as many individual mistakes. And I guess we were a little bit more compact than the Liverpool game. But, I mean, it could easily have been 5-0 at halftime on, an, on another day. Well, you've, you've also got to think about the... Uh, the opposition you're playing against Liverpool are exactly the kind of team who if you make mistakes will just punish you for all of them City are the kind of team where they don't really need you to make mistakes they'll just kind of when they're at the best they don't need you to make mistakes they'll just kind of score when they want to had we played exactly like we did against City say Liverpool were the opposition on Saturday I think it could have easily again been five, six, seven, whatever so you have to bear in mind kind of how the opposition work. You're not, you, Guardiola's team, Guardiola's city often batter people, but it is, well, it's not the same. It's as just Liverpool. a different way of doing it. And, yeah, it, and yeah. again, it was only 2-0 at half time, but I mean, De Gea made two or three great yeah. saves. You know, it, I think the Liverpool, I think Liverpool tore through us more than City did, but the City game was arguably more dominant. Oh, definitely. I think that's one of the, I, I've done think I've really ever seen United dominated so much. And as I say, it wasn't just, it wasn't only dominant in terms of kind of uh, passing and, and uh, chances on goal. It was also just completely dominant in terms of mentality. There was, I don't think there were beyond kind of the <laughs> about 90 seconds in, were there any doubts ever that City were just going to walk that game? And that is, that is shocking. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was just disheartening. It, I tweeted during the game that, it reminded me quite a lot of uh, when we went to the, the new camp and played Barcelona after we'd knocked out PSG in 2019. When yeah. I think we were one nil down after the first leg and we went there, you know, not confident, but with some amount of hope that, you know, nick an early goal and sort of see what happens. And at that point, obviously our squad was a lot worse than it is now. And it was the clearest example I think I've ever seen of United just being completely outclassed by just a a superior team in every single aspect, both in terms of the quality on the pitch, the way that they're set up on the ball, off the ball, everything. I felt that night was, I I distinctly remember watching that game and feeling, thinking, wow, United have so far to go to reach, you know, the heights of Europe's elite. And this is, this is what, this is probably the closest I've felt to that game since it reminded me of that. It was just, we're just completely getting outclassed. But the difference is now the difference isn't all down to the squad. Back then, our squad was just clearly massively inferior to Barcelona's. Our squad isn't particularly inferior to Man City's. It's not quite as good, but it's not that far off and this gap shouldn't be this big. Yeah, absolutely. And with that, let's move on to the bigger issues. Uh, to start with, I'm going to re-outline my position, which is, and I think long-time listeners of the podcast will potentially remember this, but even under Van Aal and Marino, I'm never going to, my my attitude is, is not up to me to decide whether 
the United manager stays or goes and my opinion won't really change it. So I'm not going to make the decision. So I'll simply support whoever the United manager is until they go and then move on. And it was like that with Van Gaal and Mourinho, often to the uh, humiliation of my family who <laughs> who were not uh, so convinced by Louis Van Gaal when I was uh, very naively convinced by him. Uh, and, and it was certainly tested at times. And we're just in a situation now where we're just waiting for Solskjaer to go, aren't we? And that's what's so horrible yeah. about it. He's just been hung out to dry. And you can say perhaps he he should resign and people have suggested that. But this is a man who, put yourself in his position, you would you would still back yourself to turn things around. You would still believe in yourself to turn things around. And it's ultimately not up to him. Managers don't resign. It's, it, it just very rarely happens. And it, it's not his decision to make. It does just feel like we're just waiting for it to happen and that the people making the decision at United will simply wait as long as possible. What they're waiting for, I'm not sure. Whether they truly believe that Solskjaer's going to turn it around or they simply just don't care as long as United manage to qualify for the Champions League, I don't know. Um, and yeah, I just hope, I, I'll be very sad when Solskjaer moves on if that happens. But I just hope he can leave with his head held high and I guess soon before this gets worse. And because ultimately he will have failed this season partly because of his own ability and, and many wrong decisions, I think. But also because of the way the club is run. And I don't just mean the failure to buy a midfielder because we would still be playing badly even with a good midfielder. I think that much is clear that the shift this season to try and be a front foot attacking team just hasn't worked with Solskjaer as manager. He managed to make a good United team that sat back and counter-attacked and, as Jack said earlier, sprang tactical surprises when they were necessary. But the fact is that United have a structure that isn't replicated anywhere else in elite football. And that there's a, there's a reason for that. It's a structure where people inside the club, let alone outside, don't know who's ultimately responsible for the big decisions and where there's this constant battle between good football people and money-first executives who don't care whether we win the league or not, as long as the Champions League broadcast money is rolling in. Yeah, I think. I mean, firstly, I think it's important to say that this is a pretty awful situation for United at the moment. That if I if if I forget all of the other considerations around what would happen afterwards, absolutely in my mind, Solskjaer should be sacked. What what we've seen is enough of any manager to warrant them being relieved of their job. The the trouble though is that, you know, where do you go from there? Because, you know, obviously we don't want to end up in a position where we have a little boost from a manager for a few months and yes. then end up right back here in 18 months or two years. We've said before that the the options that are out there are are somewhat limited, especially if, if you're only looking at managers that are out of work at the moment. And then there's you know a whole host of issues around getting a manager out of their current job, so it it's tough. And I don't think I think I think one thing that I worry about is that I don't think that Solskjaer should leave United, and I don't and I think he will leave at some point, either this season or at the end of the season. I don't think we'll see Solskjaer as United manager at the start of next season. But whenever that does happen, it would be unfair, I think, and disrespectful to Solskjaer for it to happen in a way 
that our our abiding memory of him is these last few weeks. I th- I think I put on Twitter. I think after the Liverpool game to say you know in my mind sort of he he was done and that it's been great for two and a half years, but this is sort of it. And you know basically every response to the, the to the tweet was like, has it been great for two and a half years? He's done a terrible job, and it, that's just just simply not true. Yeah. It's just simply not true. If you look at where we were when he came in and where we are now, it is night and day. And there's a reason that we're so upset and so annoyed about what we're seeing on the pitch at the moment. And it's because he has done such a good job to get us to a point where expectations are that we should be challenging for the league title. And I don't think anyone expected us to get here that quickly based on where we were even 18 months ago. And you only have to look at what's changed. You look at what's changed this season from last season. And I think what's so concerning now is there's just no sign of a long-term plan. And at least before... We had no faith that there was a long-term plan at the top of the club all throughout Solskjaer's time. But what you did have is faith that Solskjaer knew his long-term plan and conveyed that to his squad and to his coaching staff and up up the chain. What we've seen this season, and you can pinpoint it on the signing of Ronaldo, on the signing of Varane, on the way we've played, on many things, on the the certain players being sold, certain players being given new contracts. There, There are a number of examples where you can pin it on and say, this is, this shows it. But we've seen him shift from, he's now got the squad where I think he thinks he needs to play front foot attacking football and dominate games because we've got Ronaldo, Varane, Sancho, uh, Rashford, and, and the names carry on. Whereas his most successful spells as United manager have come when he's played as a, a counter-attacking team as we said before, with certain tactical surprises that have sometimes been very, very good. Uh, Again, in terms of squad building, again, you can point to a few examples where a certain profile, that was what was so good about the start on the Solskjaer was the wrong, the the players who didn't fit United, even if they were good players were being sold and the players with the right profiles were coming in, even if they weren't as good as the players leaving. Players like Dan James, even Odinagalo, just the right kind of profile at the time for United. And the the key was we were getting more transfers right than we were getting wrong, which had been the other way around under Mourinho, Van Gaal, and in the very short amount of time, David Moyes. Although I guess you could say Fellaini and Mata ended up as good signings. Uh, And that was one of the keys and that changed, I think. The the squad building, suddenly you looked at this, uh, at the signing of Ronaldo basically and thought, well, that doesn't fit in with everything United have been doing. What's that about? Um, and I'm not saying this isn't a conversation about whether Ronaldo was the the right signing to make or not. That can be held for another time. But so much has changed this season. Even if you look at the, the minutes given to young players this season, Anthony Lango's played a bit, but not very much. Mason Grimmond has obviously played a lot, but he's now a first team squad member. Compared to last season and the season before, young talents aren't getting as much time this season because we're under a lot of pressure yes but we have sacrificed all the good bits of the Solskjaer bit and that's why the steam train that I mentioned at the beginning is rolling so quickly back down the hill because it's not just that we're losing it's that all the good bits are just starting to disappear yeah absolutely and you know in some ways Solskjaer is is reaping not reaping the benefits of what he sowed but reaping the the downsides of what he sowed in some ways because he he has created this pressure. He's created these expectations because he has built this squad so well. And it's unfortunate that it doesn't seem like he is the right person to to maximise those players that he has brought in. And that is sort of a sad, 
an unfortunate position that we're in. And, it, you know, it's partly the pressure ramping up, the expectations ramping up that I think forced his hand and has forced his hand with some of the signings like Ronaldo, even like Varane. And also, you know, not playing as many young players, not rotating as much. It's also down to results on the pitch as well in that like you get knocked out of the Carabao yeah. Cup in uh, the first opportunity and then players like Elangov, like Van der Beek, like Lingard can't get as much game time. Yeah, I just think, before you move on. I guess my, my question, Harry, another be, rubbish if, analogy. Yeah, go on. He is he has sown the, the great seeds and done everything right for the for a great harvest in the spring. And then he's bought a tractor which is far too big and driven all over it and wrecked it. <laughs> That's, that well, somehow works, actually. Comes from watching Clarkson. I was going to say, my, my question to, to you... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my question to you would be, if you forget for a second all of the issues around, you know, the structure of the club, who's in charge, if you, if you were, you know, the, 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 I guess, chief operating officer of Man United, if you were the one making the decision, what would, what would you do? What would be your ideal scenario now? Forget assuming that everything off the off the pitch was you know working as it should be. Um, interesting. Well, firstly, if everything off the pitch, I, I was trying to think about this last night, and I actually, I actually had a hard time sort of getting past the okay. Well, you get rid of Solskjaer, and then sort of what comes next? Yes, yeah, absolutely. The problem is, I, I will try to answer that question eventually. But while I kind of ramble, the, the the two problems is if everything was working perfectly. I don't think we'd be in this situation because either Solskjaer would have been better supported, have better coaches around him, better players, whatever, better squad building, better vocal support because that has been blatantly missing at United. If if they're going to stick with him, this is a separate point, but if they're going to stick with him after the Liverpool game, there shouldn't have been three days of silence and then just kind of carry on and hope everything blows over. After this game, there shouldn't have been however many days of silence there's already been and then nothing. If they were going to stick with him, they should have come out and said, everyone shut up we're sticking with this we believe in him and that would have helped things because it would have stopped this harmony in the camp it would have stopped as much media speculation and I think that's what they tried to do with the Mike Phelan contract but it didn't really work so firstly we wouldn't be in this situation if everything was better uh, or they would have or the person who was in charge say it's me would have looked at the data and the long term signs on the pitch and 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 uh, moved on earlier, possibly after the Europa League final, possibly before that. The other thing is, yeah, if if everything is is a is a good structure, then yeah, you move on. But you would also have a contingency plan in place, and that's part of the problem. Is if if we believed there was a contingency plan in place, I think it would be much easier to make that decision. But I I think. I think the people making the decision at United are not making this because they believe in Solskjaer. I think they're making it because they're indecisive and they don't know. They they are having the same oh, thoughts yeah, as absolutely. us. So, so those are my two things first, is that were things to be working properly, you A, you wouldn't be in this situation. If you were, you would have a contingency plan. So the decision would be much easier. Actually answering your question, yes, if there was the right structure, you'd move on and find... I, because I think someone like Graham Potter would be an excellent manager for United in the right structure. But I don't think he would be a good United manager in this structure because the pressure is so much that as a United manager in this setup, you have to deal with more than every other manager in 
pretty much world football, but certainly in the Premier League, you have so many more responsibilities as well as the bigger pressure. So then if I was making decision and everything was in the right structure, I would go for someone, a great coach to get the most out of this team while it's still at their right ages. So Graham Potter or whoever you like, don't need to choose a name. And you thought, and and you would try and make that change now? Yeah, but not only now. If I was going to make that change, I would have made it uh, possibly after Liverpool, but (laughs) I don't know. Uh, Probably, uh, maybe I wouldn't have made it after Liverpool, but certainly if I was going to make it now, I'd be making it immediately after the City game or at least the morning after. It's already Monday. That that chance for a new manager to come in at the weekend and work with the players on Monday, that's gone already. I, I, saying that, I don't think they are going to sack him. So I'm no, no, uh, no, I'm not surprised it hasn't happened yet because it's not going to happen. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons it's, it's not going to happen is because Solskjaer is quite a good fool guy for everyone behind the scenes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think if... Something that I've, I've sort of thought about because I, th- I think that one of the biggest challenges that we're facing is... Well, obviously there is all the off-field, you know, thing. So if you get rid of social, it doesn't actually solve a lot of the broader issues at the club. That's one. If you if you take those out, like the question I posed to you, assume that everything was fine. And also that somehow we've got into this situation, which as you said, probably wouldn't have happened anyway, have those issues not been there. I think something that, something that I've thought about is, even if you get rid of social now, which you can do, and I've... I said, in a vacuum, I, I think that is the right thing to do. Where you go from here is is just so difficult to sort of figure out because you want to get in a manager as soon as possible that can work with the squad for as long as they can. But you also have to get this, this appointment right because obviously this team is very good on paper and has potential to be very good. And so if you get this appointment wrong and you waste all of that good work that has been done to build this squad to where it is, and so what do you, which one of those do you prioritise? Do you prioritise getting a new manager the most amount of time or do you prioritise getting the right manager? And those two things hopefully can go hand in hand, but that might not be the case. So if you want someone like a Ten Hag, let's say, and the reports are that he won't leave during the season, is it worth, say, thinking about how like Chelsea have used Gus Hiddink in the past? Is, it, is there an argument, say, you get someone in for the season and as sort of a caretaker manager and they but that is sort of yeah well that was that's what I thought after, after Liverpool game I thought if if we're if Solskjaer's gonna go then I would like to probably see us get someone like that the problem I then faced was well who do you get yeah and I don't I, I don't think there's any obvious options because well, and, and the other issue is that if we remember two and a half yeah. years ago, that is exactly the circumstances under which Solskjaer was hired and the board took the easy way yeah. out because that was the, the the easy sort of obvious thing to do and it was the way to sort of get the fans on side in the short term. Yeah. What do, I mean... And so if they did that again and this, and this let's say it's Kieran McKenna, for example, <laughs> if Kieran McKenna takes over, does really well until March, are we then going to give him a three-year contract because it's just the sort of the easy way to do, to do everything and repeat this cycle again? Yeah. Well, we put all our eggs in one basket and that is never a good idea in football, whether it's a player or a manager or whoever. There should always be a contingency plan. We we treat every manager as if they're the next Sir Alex Ferguson and none of them will be, none of them are, none of them have been, no one will be. Football managers don't stay for that long. City will have a contingency plan for Pep, Liverpool will have it for Klopp, Chelsea will already have one for Tuchel that's just how good clubs work and the, uh, part of the problem is 
Ole goes, okay, who takes the decision then? Firstly, who takes the decision to fire him? Is it Ed Woodward, the kind of shamed executive vice chairman who's meant to be leaving in two months and who has made a litany of wrong decisions in his dreadful eight years at the top? Or is it his supposed replacement, Richard Arnold, who again has a string of fuck-ups under his belt in his current role and just so happens to be Woodward's mate from his uni days and going to take his job? Or, or is it going to be two very sensible football people with sights set on genuinely making United better, John Murta and Dan Fletcher? Or is it going to be Joel Glazer, who is so blatantly unqualified to make that decision, but is going to take it because his dad had enough money to buy a, a cash cow in the Premier League or didn't have enough money, actually. He took out a loan to do it and then put all the debt on United. That's that's the problem. Well, and in, um, in in reports in the last few days, I think including from Miguel Delaney, it sounds like it's Joel Glazer that is responsible for the decision, which seems very odd given that until the Super League debacle, he hadn't engaged in, with this football club publicly in in years. Uh, also, th- so- th- think about how many people how many people are employed at the club with the kind of title where you would expect them to make that decision. Yeah, there are. I can think of at least four. And yet it's not going to be any of those four. It's going to be the owner. It's insane. And this is why... And the the owner making a decision in itself isn't necessarily a problem. It's a problem because this owner has had (laughs) absolutely nothing to do with the running of this football club for years and only came in when it it was to the point where fans were having protests because of their terrible handling of the situation. There were signs that football people were being given the responsibility for the football things at the club again, but that seems to just not be true. Yep. Yeah. And that is... And again, Solskjaer makes a great, Solskjaer makes a great yeah. fool guy because he loves the club so much that he won't, he won't say anything bad. He won't publicly call out what's going on upstairs like someone like a Jose Mourinho did. He will continue fighting. He'll continue saying the right thing and putting on a brave face to the media and so as much as, as much as we love Solskjaer and I do, and I love Solskjaer, I think he's done a great job and has been, you know, a brilliant sort of um, figurehead for this club and this team. Yeah. In some ways, he's the worst person to have in a situation like this because it's far bigger than him, but his respect for the club is such that it's something to be admired. His respect for the club is, is such that he won't call out publicly what's happening upstairs. Yeah. And that's, that's my greatest concern as we wrap up is, is the Glazers waiting it out, hoping that they won't be the ones responsible for pulling the trigger, that it will be blamed upon fan frustration, media pressure, anything else but them. But I do think when the decision is finally made, there will be a huge amount of attention on who made that decision, why it took so long, why, on the other hand, why there was no vocal support given that they were leaving him in the job. I, I think that's kind of been an understated part of this because uh, imagine, just imagine your Solskjaer and imagine your only support being the fact that there's no word from the club and that these rumours just allow to swirl around and swirl around every day, every day. And he's pretty good at not looking at them, but he's still uh, he's still human. And uh, to wrap up on a good note and perhaps next week we can talk we can reflect on this season and and also the last three years and and go through what Solskjaer has done well and what he's done badly because we haven't got time to really do that here but just to wrap up he's carried himself with such impressive humility throughout this period and that's admirable at least 
And it, this isn't the first time he's been hung out to dry by the board. It's happened on several occasions, both in relation to his future and his job, but also the European Super League where he was made to talk to media without any knowledge of it after I think we played Burnley. Uh, but his commitment to the club is unwavering and his commitment to being a nice person is unwavering as well. He's always, even after the heavy defeats to Liverpool and City, making time for fans after. And, and one day I hope he'll come back to Old Trafford and there'll be a special reception for him. And hopefully that'll be when we've won something in a few years. But to end on a, a more sour note, am I confident we'll ever win something proper under the Glazer ownership? No, not really. I don't think I don't think so unless we luck we somehow back our way into appointing a truly special manager. A Jurgen Klopp. Yeah, and and if we do and if we manage to do that it won't be because it's a great appointment and because you know there was a lot of planning and foresight that went into it. It will, I think it will a lot of it will be luck and it will be that one manager's sort of ability to sort of overcome well, everything around them. We thought Solskjaer was the man to overcome all of that. And in fairness, he has overcome all of that to a point. And now he's, he's I don't want to end just blaming this on everyone except Ole Gunnar Solskjaer because his management has clearly not been good enough this season. But yeah, he overcame that to a point and has now been unable to overcome it. And in this scenario, in that pressure, he's now made, I think, well, a string of of poor decisions. Yeah, and it, and it, again, it 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 can be both, right? Like Solskjaer has not been good enough this season. Yeah, and I yeah, don't yeah. think that Solskjaer is good enough in general to take this team where it needs to go. But it's it yeah. also isn't just him. It, there's, it's no surprise yeah. that this is a roughly the same length of time that both Jose Mourinho and Louis Van Gaal were at United about the same amount of time it took for things to fall down for them as well. And, you know, for everything we want yeah. to say about Oli not being proven and not tactically being good enough, I know Jose and Louis van Gaal were towards the end of their careers and maybe not, you know, you know sort of their prime as managers, but two of the most experienced, most decorated managers of, of this generation, if they had the same issues, there's clearly something other than just Solskjaer going on here. Yeah. And to end on a positive note, I think someone can make this work. And for a long time, I thought that was Solskjaer and I, it probably isn't. Yeah. As I said last week, it would require an absolute miracle for Solskjaer to really turn this around and to be in place yeah. at the start of next season. And, but, and I think that I think that the fact that it would take someone sort of special and, and I think to sort of overcome everything that's happening, I think le- lends me to... Lean, makes me lean towards more someone like an Eric Ten Hag or a Graham Potter. That's why I and sort think, of a yeah. longer term replacement. Someone who who really hasn't worked at. I know Ajax are a big club, sort of historically, but not currently, and certainly not the pressure. Actually, someone who hasn't worked in that sort of environment yeah. before, I think, could actually be better. I think so. Yeah, take a gamble because why? I think this is what I don't know where I said it last week or two weeks ago, but. I think take a gamble because you're not there. You cannot find a better manager, a better proven manager than the three that are already at the top three clubs in the league in Tuchel, Guardiola and Klopp. Yeah. So, and perhaps Conte is either in that top three or number four. Uh, So you can't find a better manager than them. So take a gamble and obviously not a complete guess. You still do your due diligence, but take a punt on someone maybe is a year too early for the job, but might might do really well. So let's end on that. An interesting point. Positive. Sorry, so thing, thing for, for, um, for me to end on is uh, 
sort of an interesting alternative history point. Gareth Kelly tweeted me yesterday after I tweeted about how impressed I was by West Ham saying, if Moyes had, had never taken the Manchester United job in 2013, it's interesting that he might now be the front runner to take over from Solskjaer. Oh yeah, he absolutely If you sort be. of take that year out of out of his career, I don't think he would probably yeah. be the front runner for the job. I don't now. think there's <laughs> any doubt about that. He would 100% be the front runner. It would, it would be all over. And, we, and not only would he be front runner, we'd probably appoint him. Um, so yeah, there's that. On the other hand, a couple of journalists this week were using West Ham's win against Liverpool as a chance to say, oh, the Man United sacked seven years ago. And it's just so inane and po- And they know it's completely yeah. inane and pointless because the, there's always this idea that managers can't improve. And he's so clear, he is so clearly learned. He was rubbish at United, rubbish at Sunderland, rubbish at Real Sociedad. He's learned from all those experiences, found the right club for him and he's doing a brilliant job and it's great to see. But the idea that this should be kind of pinned on United like, oh, look at the mistake they made with David Moyes. It's just, just bollocks. And ending the same, on that. The same journalist, by the way, that thought he was probably sacked four months too late. As Absolutely, well. yeah. Yeah. At the time. Absolutely. Okay, let's wrap things up. Thank you for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that to a certain extent, despite the depressing nature of it. International break gives us some time to uh, relax, reflect, and uh, hopefully ignore football for a couple of weeks. Uh, But if you want to hear from Jack on football, and I guess the Cricket World Cup as well, you can find him on Twitter at... At UTD Tate, T-A-I-T. And you can find me at Harry Robinson 64 and the podcast itself at UTD Weekly Pod. That's P-O-D at the end there, where you can also find information about how to become a patron of the podcast. And we're going to go and do a quick patron bonus Q&A now. But for the rest of you, thank you very much for listening. Have a great week. Goodbye. Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.